Spectrums next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists. Good afternoon. I'm Rick Karneski, the host of today's show. Today we're talking about the science of beer with UCSF Brewers Guild members Yug Varma, Kenton Hawkinson, Ryan Dalton, Scott Hansen, and Robert Schumann. Can you guys please introduce yourselves and say what your research focuses on? Hi, I'm Yug. I am a postdoc and I study the human microbiome. We study bacteria associated with the human body. I'm Kenton. I'm a grad student and I study synapses and their regulations. Mostly I am concerned with homeostasis and the idea is if you perturb one half of a synaptic pair, then the other half somehow recognizes this and quickly adapts itself to maintain normal neuronal function. I'm Ryan. I'm a graduate student in neuroscience, and I study the olfactory system. My name is Scott Hansen. I'm a graduate student, and the questions I've been interested in are how cells interpret signals from their environment. Being a biochemist, I try to understand how the proteins at the cellular level are being rearranged and forming different complexes to produce shape changes. My name is Robert Scheman. I'm a first-year graduate student. I'm studying bioinformatics. And uh, I got into brewing beer as an undergrad when, uh, with my hobbies, I kind of start doing something and I get completely obsessed with it. So I, at first I was, uh, didn't drink beer at all or didn't drink any alcohol and then uh, had my first taste of beer and then decided within a couple of months that I'd start brewing and haven't looked back ever since. Cool. Scott, can you please explain what the UCSF Brewers Guild is? The UCSF Brewers Guild was founded by myself and Michael Schulte and Colin Dismore about three years ago. So we decided to just hang out every month and just talk about the beer that we were making. Shortly after that, I joined forces with some people at Langton Laboratories in uh, the Soma, San Francisco, and they provided a venue for us to start having biannual beer brewing festivals. Yug, how do we get beer? So beer is a holy confluence of hops, yeast, malted barley or malted grains, and water. In fact, there is an ancient beer law called the Reinheitsgebot, which is the earliest consumer protection law. And that says that beer must be only malted barley and hops and water. At that time, they, of course, did not know that yeast made beer. That discovery was made by Pasteur in the late 1800s, but essentially that's what beer is. Can you explain malt to us, Robert? So the majority of grains used in brewing are malted grains, and so what that means is basically after the grain has been harvested, it's taken, it's soaked in water, allowed to absorb a certain amount of water, and then allowed to germinate. And then once it reaches a certain stage of germination, it's roasted to to halt germination and prevent the, the seed from converting all the starches into simple sugars but it's allowed to germinate long enough such that it produces the enzymes necessary for the conversion of the starches into the sugars. Are there other reasons to get out these simple sugars? 
some of these simple sugars are available to the yeast right at the end. The chief reason why some of these starches have to be converted to sugars is because the next step is to roast them, right? And the roasting process stops the germination, but it also causes a lot of the Maillard reactions to occur. The different flavors that you get from malts are because of two reactions. One is caramelization, which is just the sugar caramelizing, which gives you the toffee sort of, you know, sweet caramel flavors. Uh, the other is the Maillard reaction, which will give you anything from bready to bread crust to nutty, biscuity, chocolatey coffee. You know, that's the progression of flavors, depending on how long you roast and how dark the roast is. And so for the Maillard reactions, of course, you need amino acids or some nitrogen source, and then you need the simple sugar, because if you have the complex starch, all it'll do is burn. You're listening to Spectrum on Calyx. I'm talking with the UCSF Brewers Guild. Now, is it fair to say that a lot of the difference in flavor that you get is from this malting process and this roasting process, or do you get differences based on where the malt is grown or the kind of barley used for the malt? The variety of malt is important. The where it was grown, I think, less so. There's two-row barley and there's six-row barley. So two-row barley has a lot more enzymes, but very little sugar. And six-row barley is the opposite. So you want some two-row barley to provide all the enzymes during mashing to break down the starches. But you need some starches around. So six-row malt is added to just get the you know, heft of the sugar in. And are non-barley grains malted? Some. Well, that's a, yeah, some. For Rice example. is not. Because rice is just a ton of simple fermentable sugars. Wheat is. And rye, yes, it is. Oatmeal, no. Oatmeal. Um, That'd be considered. That's a non-barley. That's a good point. Um, Well, you can roast oatmeal at home. I don't actually know if the oats you get are roasted. Uh, the oats always... you get would not be roasted, right. but people do toast it in their oven. Yeah. And that, again, does a little Maillard magic and gives you some roasted oatmeal flavors. So, Kenton, the next process is to boil the grain. Is that right? Grain carries with inside of it a ton of starch as like a stored energy source. And uh, what we do as brewers is buy grain that has all the starch. We crush it up and then soak it in water that activates a bunch of enzymes, which are just little machines that chop up these starches into sugars. A ton of thought and work goes into just turning those starches into sugar using nothing but water at the appropriate temperatures and then flushing it out. And we try to flush out as much of the sugar as possible. And then we've made sugary water that also has other compounds from the barley that gives it different characteristics. And then we just, well, we boil it. And you do that to sterilize it. And also it gives you an opportunity to add things that flavor it. So the most common of those, obviously, is hops. And when you boil hops, they you isomerize an acid inside of them that turns the, the sugar water, which we call wort, more bitter. And that's also a time when you can add other things, coffee beans, fruit. Uh, what's the spice that we often use? Coriander. Chipotle. Oh, yeah. yeah we use chipotle peppers. Uh, yeah, oh, coriander. Yeah. Um, it gives you a chance to dump in anything you like that will influence how the, the final product tastes or if you dump it in right at the very end, how it smells. And so once you've boiled it for as long as you want to, you cool it as quickly as possible, trying to keep it from being contaminated by any of the bugs that float around in the air. And then you dump in yeast, which love the sugar that you've put into the water. And so they will just go crazy for a few weeks fermenting. When they ferment, they produce CO2 and alcohol, and that turns the wort into beer. 
And Ryan, does the boiling process change the malt in other ways? You drive what are called Maillard reactions, which are reactions between diverse sugar molecules and the diverse short proteins and amino acids that occur in the beer. These reactions are essentially a linking of these two molecules. And because you, you're creating a very heterogeneous set of compounds, you have a, a flavor that is very complex and is very hard to replicate without actually boiling this set of ingredients together. You are listening to Spectrum on Calix Berkeley. Members of the UCSF Brewers Guild are discussing the chemical conversions of the solutions of malted barley and hops and the analysis of homebrewing data. So, Robert, let's talk about hops. Actually, one trend that I kind of think is pretty cool and interesting on the technology side of things that some breweries are using now what's called a supercritical hop extracts. Pack a tube full of hops, you pressurize it with CO2 on one end, and all of the hop oils are kind of forced out, and you're left with all the vegetable matter in the tube, and you have all of kind of those nice, wonderful, rich oils left out of it. So these breweries have taken to using these supercritical hop extracts to kind of reduce the, their losses in beer and also kind of just increase the amount of hop oils you can get into beer. And how do we get new hop varieties? So my understanding of how new hop varieties arise is that they, this group up at Oregon State University, they breed new hops, get different hop varieties, try brewing beers with these new hop varieties, see if they taste good. If they taste good, they'll distribute them to breweries for them to experiment with. If the breweries like them, then they'll become kind of mainstays. And you, hops propagate by a rhizome? Yeah, it propagates by rhizome, which is actually a root modification under the ground. And so it's very easy to swap rhizomes with someone who's growing hops and, and grow your own because rhizomes are super hardy. They grow in binds, which are essentially creepers, and their stem has this super Velcro material, which is great to play around with. You just stick it on anything that has a fiber and it'll just latch on. It, it's very, very tough. And anyone who's grown this will attest to it. They're really hard to get rid of once you've had them in for a year or so in your garden. They're kind of super tall. Yeah, and they grow super tall and they grow super fast. Uh, a newly growing hop bine will grow up to, I've heard, uh, a foot a day, which is kind of boggling. Uh, but, I, but I have seen it grow several inches a day. Wow. Well, my hops will probably start uh, blooming in July or August, and they're usually ripened by September. Uh, or October, depending on the season. Initially, there are these green, almost lime green or, or darker green, upside down sort of papery chandeliers. Uh, they look very delicate and beautiful. And when they're wet, they're kind of soft to the touch. But when they dry out, they get slightly more brown and get papery. And they have a, a kind of pollen uh, that you can that sort of rubs on your fingers. And when they get papery and dry, that's when the, the oils in them mature, and that's when you're supposed to harvest them. Even at that stage, they're usually a little wet, so you need to dry them. Air drying is preferred over uh, oven drying over the lowest possible temperature setting because, obviously, oven drying will get a lot more of the volatiles out of the hop. And what does this air drying process do? <clears throat> it just takes the water out. The air drying partly 
matures the oils and it removes the grassy flavor because if you ever uh, use wet hops in your beer it'll taste like a mouthful of grass the alpha acid that is often talked about by home brewers is chiefly humulone which is a fluoroglucinol derivative and that isomerizes when you boil it into isoalpha acids now humulone on its own is not very soluble but when you boil it, it gets more soluble, so you actually extract it. Uh, it also gets more bitter. The bitterness, of course, is gives a little bit of astringency, which is bracing. But uh, more importantly, uh, hops is the chief antibacterial compound in beer. It, uh, it helps massively to prevent spoilage. Hops are actually a soporific, right? <laughs> they are. They're estrogenic and... Um, in fact, one of the um, other things that I'm going to use them for is make hop pillows. Just stuff them into pillows, <laughs> and uh, apparently they help you sleep at night. Yeah. This is Spectrum. We're talking with the UCSF Brewers Guild. Ryan, does water chemistry matter? The historical example that everyone always cites is um, the beers that come out of Burton-on-Trent versus the beers that come out of Dublin. The beer that comes out of Dublin is black, and you know you wonder why it's black. It's great. You know, perhaps is not black because the the people of Ireland. Uh, enjoy a dark beer. It's it's black because the water chemistry uh, necessitates it, uh, and the reason that is is because these enzymes that are converting starches to sugars during your mash depend on pH. And barley that has been roasted for different amounts of time have different effects on uh, the acidity of your mash water. In Dublin, where the water is quite basic, it needs to be acidified uh, by a dark malt, which has a strong power to acidify water uh, to bring it into the range where uh, these enzymes are active. Whereas uh, if you have water that is already without adjustment uh, at that pH range, you do not need to, to use dark malt and you can create a, a lighter beer. Uh, incidentally, the tap water in San Francisco is really good for a pretty diverse range of styles. And why is our water so good? That's very low on minerals, so it gives you a lot of flexibility to add the minerals you want. It comes a little basic to begin with, so we often add minerals to our mash to lower the pH, but it'll... It'll turn out most things. We, you know, they're like Florida, where my sister lives. The water is sulfury, and I don't think you could even brew with it. Oh, God. You know, one of the parameters that will affect how your, your beer tastes in the end is the sulfur to chloride ratio. And I don't think you could add enough chloride there. It's disgusting. So, you know, in San Francisco, we are in the Bay Area. This is actually funny because usually most uh, beer books say, oh, you know, you should worry about the chloride content of your water because water is chlorinated in most municipal water supplies. And So do you use regular tap water then? Or do you filter it in some way, reverse osmosis, or buy distilled water? A lot of people will cut their water with distilled water or reverse osmosis water to reduce the mineral content. That's not necessary, at least in San Francisco, or anyone who gets the water from Hetch Hetchy, which is sort of a natural filter. So we don't, we don't cut our water with anything. We add minerals to it for almost every brew. So I, I've started dechlorinating my water with Campton tablets. Do you guys do the same? Do you think that's necessary? I've started using uh, ascorbic acid, just vitamin C, which basically is the same thing as uh, Campton tablets, but honestly, I haven't noticed any flavor differences in my beer since I've started. The San Francisco Water Report has the chloride content, and it's not extraordinarily high. Yeah. So well, it's probably of, not a bad thing to do, but it's not it's, necessary yeah. either. Yeah, in fact, uh, one of the best ways of removing chlorine from water is just to boil it. Boil it for 15 minutes, and you're pretty much getting rid of all the chlorine. <laughs> so do you think that in the process of 
boiling all of the sugar and the wort, that's equivalent to pre-boiling the water? I would say so. Uh, especially by the time it hits, I mean, or rather the yeast, the yeast hits the wort, um, you're probably clear of a lot of, or all the chlorine that you, sh- you should basically be worrying about would have just dissipated. Another way of getting rid of chlorine is just to pour water into a, a pot and just leave it out for hours and hours. So boiling is much more fast and efficient. Is it evaporating? Uh, it is. It's very volatile. Um, and, you know, it just, uh, it degasses the water. It's, it's, that's what it does. It just drives all the gases, dissolved gases from the water. The only problem is that that doesn't work for chloramines. So yeah. you can convert the chloramines into chlorine by adding Camden tablets or a little bit of Camden tablet or a little bit of uh, citric acid or azorbic acid. And then that'll convert it to chlorine and then either through boiling or letting it sit out, the, the chlorine will evaporate. Yeah, but I mean, um, I frankly love San Francisco water out of the tap. It's delicious to drink. It is re- really one of the tastiest sort of un- unprocessed waters that I've drunk. What kind of minerals do you add and why? So we mostly add calcium chloride and calcium sulfate. We, we basically drive the pH as low as we can until our mineral additions get excessive and we just feel like we're making it hard and stupid. <laughs> You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We're talking about the science involved in beer making with members of the UCSF Brewers Guild. Kenton, if a person were to just start homebrewing, what do you think is the most important thing that they pay attention to? I think temperature. That is both really important and also one of the things that you get classically terrible advice about. Get a good thermometer if you're going to invest in one thing that doesn't come in the standard brew kit. You should consider what the temperature is in your house. You should have thermometers in different places in your house. Figure out what temperature is. If it's 90 degrees in the middle of the summer, you're not brewing, okay? Unless you have a refrigerator. So so just, just think about basement. what the temperature is. Think about what type of beer you want to make, and then, you know, brew with the seasons. I think that's the best way to do it. Ryan, what kind of data do you record when you're brewing? We have a really good time brewing. You hear people say all the time that brewing is both art and science, right? In our brewing process and in our brewing theory, the art is in the exploration, but the science is is sort of in making sure that we can get back to where we've been. For people like, I think, all of us in the room who are, like, data probably ones. unhealthily obsessed with data and getting it consistent and being in control, maybe the biggest obstacle to brewing and getting satisfaction from it was the terrible information that's available on the Internet. When you have a question that you want an answer to and you just go out into the world looking for it, then some of the information is old and some of it is just like willfully wrong where someone has made the decision and like posted authoritatively about it and they're just wrong. Yeah, I mean, if you Google something and you get your answer from Yahoo Answers... Then it's wrong. Right. <laughs> so but that's basically what you're dealing with when you, when you Google something about beer. Recipes that no one followed up on, uh, ideas that people have, uh, misinformation passed from one person to another. 
with complete uh, authoritative tone. Yeah, so we started pulling together some things. I mean, a lot of brewing is has been studied. I mean, the breweries know everything, and then we home brewers are sort of trying to like figure th- certain things out. What you know, what parameters predict efficiency and everything. And so, we started pulling together all the formulas, everything into one place. So we keep track. When we brew, we record things like our gravities, which is the a measure of the density of the water, which is a measure of how much is dissolved in the water. And we mostly worry about that being sugar. We figure that's you know, largely sugar depending on the way we mashed. Uh, so we record our gravities and we record the lengths, the durations of our boil and things like that. And then we plug it all into what's been an Excel sheet, just a huge Excel sheet that we call the Birulatrix. And it uh, basically builds predictions for us. Like we, we plug in our brewing plan and it will tell us things like the color and the bitterness the volume that we should get out of it, uh, how strong it should be in the end, the how pH, much it should cost to brew. The diastatic power. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, so different, as, as you were saying, different uh, grains have a different amount of enzymes, but that's sort of known in a rough way. And so it'll tell you whether you have sufficient grain that will you know, power you through the mashing step, things like that. And so we put it all in one place, which is online as well. It will be soon, the Birulatrix. So, and so you mentioned that you calculate the cost of brewing beer. Uh, is that mainly just you geeking out, or do you is this really a decision point in whether you brew a beer or not? <laughs> yeah, no, it's not a decision point. <laughs> not it's anymore. sort of so we basically. It's a point of triumph. The, the main We're trying to reach thing, the turning point. Right. The main thing we look at is our efficiency. And so then we like have a beer that we produce that we love. And then we just want to try to make it better. And one thing we can use is like if we're more efficient, then it costs less to brew the beer. And that's exciting. But we would never buy less grain to save money on it. So for the winemaking industry, they have digital refractometers. As gravity changes, the refractive index of the liquid with which the gravity is changing also changes. And so when you, as the refractive index changes, if you place this on the surface of a prism, the critical angle of light passing through this prism also changes. And so you can basically place a liquid sample on a prism, shine light through the prism, and then from that you can kind of backward compute what the gravity of the liquid sitting on the prism is. And so what I'm hoping, trying to do once I get a little bit of free time after I'm done with rotations and classes for my first year is to build is to build a floating sensor that'll sit in my beer, give me real-time temperature and gravity measurements with this little prism system. So if any of you guys have any experience building stuff like that, I'd love some help this summer. (laughs) Scott and anyone else, what kind of advice do you have for aspiring homebrewers? One thing I often see with homebrewers is that they're so attached to their beers. This is the first batch of beer I made. I don't know if I want to, like, give it out. Holding on to that beer is pointless. The only way that you're going to get good at brewing beer is taking chances and just and just going for it. So the process is just uh, extremely robust. It's very difficult to make a bad beer. So you can invest at any level you like. We like to to really geek out and and understand it. We we're obsessed with controlling it, but you don't need to do that to make beer. If you can cook, you can make beer.
Homebrewers are the most genial, open, convivial fellows I have ever met. They don't hoard recipes. Homebrewers in general are some of the best people to hang out with, especially when we're brewing, because we're probably at our happiest or close to it. Brewing usually consists of consuming homebrews as well. So if you oh, I think that's a rule. I think that was written down somewhere. If so you if, want... you're, if you're not doing that, you're breaking some pretty harsh rules. Well, guys, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thanks. And now for some science news headlines. Here's Brad Swift and Lisa Katovich. The Economist reports that Dr. David Kaplan, a biomedical researcher at Tufts University who has studied silk for 22 years and devised ways to use silk in biomedical applications, has developed a new way to pack medicines into tiny silk pockets that make the medicines almost indifferent to heat. Boiling silkworm cocoons in sodium carbonate, Kaplan separates out a protein named fibroin. He mixes the fibroin with salt, then mixes that solution with the medicines to be preserved and spreads the results out as a film before freeze-drying them. The process immobilizes the medicine's molecules, preventing them from unfolding and thus losing their potency. Dr. Kaplan and his team demonstrated the effectiveness of their new technique by trying it out on the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, as well as the antibiotics tetracycline and penicillin. The medicines, when stored using this process, retained 85% potency after six months at 45 degrees Celsius. The next step is to begin human testing of the silk film medicines. If successful, this process will have enormous benefits for the global distribution of medicines. Currently, most medicines, including vaccines, require refrigeration to retain potency. The World Health Organization estimates that half of all vaccines produced are destroyed because refrigeration is lost at some point during distribution. Science Magazine reports that an international team of plant biologists working with the USDA have found that mitigating climate change through carbon sequestration actually pumps more carbon into the atmosphere. Increased carbon dioxide stimulates the growth of arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, AMF, a type of fungus that is often found in the roots of most land plants. Experiments were conducted in greenhouses as well as fields of wild oats, wheat, and soybeans, Lei Chang, postdoctorate fellow in plant science at Penn State, said elevated levels of carbon dioxide increased both the size of AMF colonies and decomposition. AMF colonies are found in the roots of 80% of land plant species and play a critical role in Earth's carbon cycle. The fungus receives and stores carbon, a byproduct of the plant's photosynthesis, from its host plant in its long vein-like structures. As the carbon transitions to the soil, the AMF triggers additional decomposition of organic carbon near the plant's root systems. This decomposition releases more carbon dioxide back into the air, which means that terrestrial ecosystems may have limited capacity to halt climate change by cleaning up excessive greenhouse gases. The big fear is that this will turn the soil into a carbon source rather than a carbon sink. A regular feature of Spectrum is a calendar of some of the science and technology-related events happening in the Bay Area over the next two weeks. Here's Brad Swift and Lisa Katovich. Scott Stevens, Associate Professor of Fire Sciences at the UC Berkeley College of Natural Resources and a past guest on Spectrum, will present a lecture entitled Fire and Ecosystem Resiliency in California Forests, Thursday, September 13th, 
from noon until 1 p.m., room 132 in Mulford Hall on the UC Berkeley campus. The California Coastal Cleanup Day is Saturday, September 15th from 8.30 to noon. Historically, this is the largest statewide volunteer event. The cities of Berkeley and Oakland are organizing shoreline cleanups. The East Bay Regional Parks District is also organizing shoreline cleanups along East Bay waterways. Pick up every bit of human-made debris you can find and record what you remove. Data collection is important. Your data goes into Ocean Conservancy's international database used to identify the sources of debris and help devise solutions to the marine debris problem. To get involved and get more details, contact Kevin Fox at the East Bay Regional Parks District, Patty Donald at the City of Berkeley, and Bryn Samuel at the City of Oakland, or search online for California Coastal Cleanup Day. On September 16th, from 11 to 12 p.m., the UC Botanical Gardens at 200 Centennial Drive in Berkeley will present a lecture, Small Space Orchards, Growing Fruit Trees in Small Gardens. Claire Splann, author of California Fruit and Vegetable Gardening, will show you simple techniques for growing a small orchard in a typical Bay Area home garden. You'll learn the best fruit varieties, space-saving techniques, and plant and care for container-grown fruit trees and much more. Copies of Claire's book will also be available for purchase. You must register in advance. The music you heard during today's show was by Lestana David from his album Folk and Acoustic. It is released under a Creative Commons license version 3.0. Spectrum was recorded and edited by me, Rick Karneski, and by Brad Swift. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. We are happy to hear from listeners. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.